Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, writer Jeff Dyer. You'll never know the hurt I suffered, nor the pain I rise above. And I'll never know the same about you, your holiness or your kind of love. And it makes me feel so sorry. Whoa. Put a lot into that so sorry. <laughs> Why did you choose that, Jeff? Uh, well, it occurred to me, I mean, obviously, uh, the last podcast of yours I listened to was the great Michael Gray. Yeah. And he chose uh, lines, few lines above that from Idiot Wind. And it occurred to me that the problem with this podcast is that it's not nearly specialised enough. I think it should be <laughs> exclusively about, <laughs> about Idiot, Idiot Wind. Wind. Yeah. We could do that. Because at the moment it just appeals to the generalist. Um, and, <laughs> I mean, so... And I thought it just brought up so many things. I should also say that but I was so looking forward to doing this that I basically spent the whole of yesterday trying to work out which lines I was going to use. And, of course, that's incredibly difficult. But, yeah, those lines that uh, Michael uh, chose, you know, down the highway, down the tracks, down the road to ecstasy, I followed you beneath the stars, hounded by your memory and all your raging glory. I mm. mean, those are great great lines and it's fantastic what he says about how it's hounded rather than haunted mm. but of course as always with dylan you know the price paid for that the opportunity cost is that we lose those other great lines from an earlier version uh, figured i'd lost you anyway why go on what's the use in order to get in a word with you i'd have had to come up with some <laughs> excuse so I think, you know, we're yeah, already getting yeah. into sort of interesting Dylan territory with that. Uh, and then it occurs to me also that what comes just before that is so interesting. You know, when he says, uh, every time I come past your uh, your door, I, I can't even touch the books you've... What is it? I can't... Every, I can't touch the books I can't you've touch the read. Bo yeah, I can't even touch the books you've read. Read, yeah. yeah. And then when uh, at on the Hard Rain version, of course, which is we are you were saying with Michael Gray, so angry and Ooh. seething and great, you know, that becomes I can't even touch the clothes you wear, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and then, but the price you pay for that is that it becomes every time I come past your door, you leave me standing in the middle of the air, which is a classic bit of sort of Dylan nonsense. It's mm. just filler because it rhymes. Mm. I don't know how you feel about... Oh, I, I'm a real fan of the early one, but I, but I, I know that you know that's a lot more shouldering the blame, isn't it? The um, you know we are idiots, babe, and blowing through the buttons of our coats and all this, and then it becomes much more, I guess, he'd say finger pointing, wouldn't he? Uh, mm. Yeah, Christian Bale saying it. Um, <laughs> the the key line for me, I, th I think, in the Fort Collins one, is one day you'll be in the grave. Yeah, flies buzzing around your eyes, rather than one day you'll be in the ditch. Yeah, yeah. But it's not necessarily about, and as he said, it's not necessarily about a marriage. There's certainly lines in there that are about the marriage yeah. mm -hmm. but a lot of it i think is about his relationship with journalists and uh, and the world in general yeah well it's yeah. A, like so many dylan songs it's about everything mm. isn't it mm. oh something i've just got to mention this this is so inane but i'm running out of things to say about idiot wind and i keep forgetting <laughs> <laughs> i've been to italy a couple of times within the, within the last 12 months did you um, steal somebody's wife exactly <laughs> so there's already that right <laughs> you know maybe i'll be emailing at michael gray and then i'll go yeah. with my wife to italy but then i get to italy and both times it just struck me the phone network, you know how your phone switches over to a, to mm. a European phone mm. network? iWind oh, is, is the phone it? network in, in Tuscany, certainly. So if you go to Tuscany, your phone literally turns into a to an idiot wind. Which, You've uh, got to be careful with this, because the next thing you hear is a voice telling you to kill the president or something. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, that was in... Yeah. Um, 
Uh, the Scorsese documentary, the, 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 they tried to kill the president twice within, oh, yes. within a month. Oh, yes. uh, right. yeah. That's, oh, yeah, that's yeah, at the beginning yeah, of the right. Scorsese documentary. Just to leap, just in case we don't get a chance, mm. what did you make of the uh, Scorsese? Oh, it was so fantastic. I think it might be the best Dylan documentary yet. And what I'm really pleased about is that um, uh, I went to see it in the cinema and it, it was just, I mean, the Prince Charles, of course, it, which is a great place always, mm. it was really packed and you get that characteristic Dylan thing that the audience, I don't think anyone else could attract such a wide audience range, mm. you know, sort of showing the way that people have been getting into Dylan for a long time. So the age would go from Dylan's contemporaries right down to sort of teenagers. And what was so great is that, you know, uh, I think it was at the end of that great version of Isis that Mm. we all just burst into applause. It's phenomenal, that performance, isn't it? Isn't it? It is amazing. And the way he's just sort of prowling the stage and those great close-ups of his face. You know, know, I I was watching a bit of it again the other day, and I was thinking, the difference between, say, somebody like Mick Jagger, who sort of makes a show, and Bob Dylan is huge, because Bob Dylan, just the way he walks, the way he prowls, you know, he's not dancing or anything, but it's he's so hypnotic. It's like some watching some hoppy Indian ritual. Oh yes, yeah, really. He's just just so, as you say, he's hypnotic and he's driven and he's kind of possessed. That when when he sings the world's biggest necklace, the (laughs) look in his eyes as he's doing this kind of you can't see it, listeners. Sorry, but he's doing this kind of uh, hourglass figure with it with his hands and singing world's biggest necklace. I read somewhere that that was the first time he'd been singing on stage without an instrument. Oh, and so suddenly he had his hands yeah. free. And I think Patti Smith mm-hmm. maybe gave him a yeah. couple of bits of advice on what to do with your hands, Bob. Yeah. Um, hence these strange, again, this, you can't see this, but these strange movements he does with his fists that's, and things. That's you know. right, yeah, uh, yeah. But it's and, fascinating. And I mean, so yeah, we applauded at the end of the song, but in a sense, the real climax of that song is the great exchange of dialogue, isn't it? She said, where you've yeah. been? I said, no place yeah. special. She said, you look different. I said, well, I guess. She said, you're going to stay. I said, if you want me to, yeah! I mean, exactly. I mean, that was the sort of orgasmic moment, I think, in that song. What do you, while we're still talking about Rolling Thunder Review, what do you think about the theatricality of it? What do you think about the, the blurring of fact and fiction? Yeah, I was not aware of that when I went to see it, although I knew some Something was awry because, um, you know, I went to see Ronaldo and Clara when it came out for, uh, I went, you know, it's four hours, isn't it? I went to see it twice. And on the one hand, I think, God, what stamina I had back then. But then I think, actually, you know, there wasn't anything so remarkable about seeing Ronaldo and Clara twice because I thought nothing of sitting through a Bergman triple bill at the Scala at that age. You know, Mm. I had the chops to do that. Mm. So I knew there was something slightly awry because Mm. I knew that Dylan had sort of pumped all this money into a film of it. But it never occurred to me watching the the documentary that the filmmaker was a... An actor, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it was very, very. I, I pretty much fell for it completely. As did we. I mean, yeah, we, we when we first came did. out of it, we, we knew something was up because of Michael Murphy. You know, Michael Murphy. We're, we're both Woody Allen fans. We know him from Manhattan. We knew, you know, of Tanner '88, the Robert Altman thing. And so to see him playing a character called Senator Tanner, we thought <laughs> something was going on here. So, yeah. And then I realized when we walked out, I was putting because it was Bob Dylan. I noticed that there was a. Uh, casting director involved in the credits yeah. I mean I read the credits very carefully and I thought casting director for a documentary what the hell Yeah. and then I then I realized that this guy Stefan van, van Dorp, Dorp 
wasn't listed, wasn't thanked in the credits because they thanked all the people that they mm. interviewed, Joan Baez and all those people. Uh, so I thought, could he be fake because it is Bob Dylan. So we we had this immediate discussion. Yeah, literally. I, I, right I, went, I, I came out, I went to the loo and I came out and Kerry said, you realise he's made up? And I went, what? What? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it was, I just, the thing, this is where I am different from some of the other fans. I thought that was just fantastic. Mm-hmm. I thought it was playful. I thought it was in 100% in keeping with every lie Bob Dylan has ever told yes, since he arrived yeah, in New York yeah. and said whatever he said. Whereas some people have... I think wrongly, fed it into this climate of Trumpian fake oh, news. And I'm thinking it's regular yeah. journalists who don't like to be, you know, fooled, especially yeah. but now, you, but if, they don't know they're Bob Dylan. But if you don't like magic and fooling around and love and theft and smoke and mirrors, what kind of a Bob Dylan <laughs> fan are you? Seriously. Well, but that, oh, exactly. the people who complain yeah. are not Bob Dylan fans. I doubt yeah. if there's any Bob Dylan fans. But some Dylan of them are, and, and they really? feel genuinely aggrieved. Ooh. And I, well, I, I've seen people on the internet, and I just thought, this is really strange, because yeah. this is the Bob Dylan we've always had. Yeah, and it goes, you know, if you think of Ronaldo and Clara, you know, Bob Dylan in that film, uh, he and Sarah play Ronaldo and Clara, yeah. don't they? Bob and Dylan is Ronnie Hawkins. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's so it's, uh, in order to be true to what was going on then, it has to be, there has to be an element of sort of fiction. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a new theory this week, actually, which I haven't bounced off you, which oh. I normally do. Okay. <laughs> which is, well, because I watched the first half just uh, yesterday. And, you know, the, the scenes where they're giving out leaflets to people in oh. the fields? Yeah. I'm wondering if those are faked as well. Because would they, would Bob Dylan have sent somebody out with a little camera crew to show people giving out leaflets to people in the field or right outside the the Mayflower? There's (laughs) a woman in a pilgrim outfit. He's got such a 75 haircut, that guy, though. Well, yeah. I, I'm wondering if they're, I'm not saying they are, but I'm, I am wondering if they are brilliantly set up. And I I think they filmed an awful lot of, just random stuff, yeah, uh, yeah, hoping it would find some sort of shape. I guess so, and if so, that's absolutely brilliant. I mean, all the stuff with Ginsburg, you know, by the water there is just that's stunning. All, that's all great, and but the greatest. Ginsburg thing of all is the way that he gets progressively relegated until he's no more than a baggage handler. That is really? a... <laughs> Him and Peter Olofsky just carry the cases. I know. And um, I, the, the other thing that I love about it is that when he says if somebody's wearing a mask, he's going to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. If he's not wearing a mask, it's highly unlikely. Yeah. It then goes into that fantastic black and white, shocking blue sequence with Stefan Van Dorp and his student films that he made at Madame oh, Tussauds. Yeah, yeah. But a... what it also <laughs> brings to light is a, is a really important truth for me, which I think, the more I thought about it, applies to Dylan's career right across the board. And that is the only thing that you can really trust that he's really interested in you being interested in is the music. Yeah, yeah. And everything else is well, everything else is just dressing. And I love the notion that we can we can believe the music in Rolling Thunder Review and the rest of it we should take or leave because yeah, that seems yeah. to me a lesson for all of us for the last 60 years of his recordings. Yeah, absolutely. And it gets I mean I'm going to make now a really stupid point, but it seems to me you know we've all thought a lot about what it is that's so distinctive about Dylan and his voice. And something really You know, to make a stupid point, it occurs to me that I was thinking this when I was listening to one of the outtakes from uh, Hard Rain, uh, that great version of um, Going, Going, Gone. When he he just starts singing, he just begins, I just reached a place. And it occurred to me that so often in Dylan, I mean, when he sings that line, you really do believe that he reached a place about a second, two seconds before he started singing. 
And there's just this thing that you always believe what he's saying. Now, of course, he's an incredibly unrel- uh, he's a very convincing witness, whether for the prosecution, William Zanzinger, <coughs> Um, or any of his <clears throat> old girlfriends, and he's an even more unreliable witness for the defence, George Jackson, Hurricane Carter. But that thing that we just believe what he's saying, it gets increasingly interesting in these songs like Tangled Up in Blue or Up to Me or something, because mm. there's, <clears throat> of course, and I don't think he ever did, you know, um, you know, did he ever work as a postal clerk? I think it's probably safe to assume you know, No, uh, and then, you know, even the evidence within the employment history within Tangled Up in Blue is r- rather tangled. Is he la- loading cargo onto a truck in L.A. or is he working on a fishing boat outside mm. of Delacroix? And how do you have a basement that's not down the stairs? Well, well? indeed, that's... A, <laughs> do you, you know that great essay by Simon Armitage where he, um, he subjects uh, uh, Tangled Up in Blue to sort of traditional lit crit saying, uh, you know, this is this is ridiculous. The basement's down the stairs, duh. And then he <laughs> yeah. uses that to show how inappropriate that kind of criticism is. Mm. But mm. then, of course, then you come to these moments in uh, something like Up To Me where suddenly it very obviously is him because who else, you know, as he says, you know, and the harmonica around my neck, I blew it for you free. Nobody else could sing that tune. You know it was up to yeah. me. Mm. So that is only Dylan who could be saying that. Mm. So all the time this kind of great shifting cast of characters gives way to these, um, you know, these really uh, um, statements that seem from him. But then, as we know from Clinton Halen, even the the most famous declaration of truth, you know, when he says, staying up for days in the Chelsea Hotel, writing sad-eyed lady of the lowlands for you. I mean, there he is, straight from the heart, except Clinton Halen points out it's pretty well known, pretty well documented that he wrote it in Nashville. Mm-hmm. So none of it can be relied on. Uh, but then, you know, he's really not giving... Uh, it's not... Uh, they're, they're, they don't have any standing as legal documents. But I think the way that we buy into what he's saying is one of the things that keeps us hanging on his every word, combined mm. with the thing that is so pronounced during some of those songs in uh, The Rolling Thunder, you know, the, the especially in Desire, the ones from Desire, you know, that incredible narrative power that they have. Ooh. And I suppose, you know, in, in literary circles, you're looking at, you know, truth and beauty, aren't you? And I think, I mean, truth is probably overrated, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think, yeah, in, this, very, in this context. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, it's, I have to say, doing this podcast has changed my way of thinking, so, steeping myself more and more in Dylan, my, my ideas of, of truth and, and, and beauty and, mm. and, and so many important things in life have, have changed. Just, I read books differently, I listen to music differently. It's just, it's another way of... It's another universe, really. Yeah, well, you do. I mean, that's it. All of these, I mean, you know, so many of the songs, when you first hear a song like Idiot Wind, it's so difficult to follow and it sort of doesn't make sense. And then, of course, once you become familiar with the weird physical laws of of Dylan's universe, this Mm. weird gravity where you know you reach the top and you're on the bottom mm. then it does start to make to, to make it has its its own kind of cohesion doesn't it mm. i must confess i have sat down and tried to work out what time of day it would be if you're coming in from the east with the sun in your eyes oh yeah yeah because <laughs> it's evening yeah what a great moment though when he says the only person on the scene missing was the jack of hearts you know yeah. so Ooh. he's there in the scene but he's not there it's just so 
Clever. <clears throat> I suppose Simon Armitage would have another go at that. The, the hanging <laughs> ju- judge was sober; he hadn't had a drink. Um, I, I read somewhere that your the first Dylan album you bought was Desire, and seeing as we were talking oh, yeah. about Desire a bit, how did you, how did that feel when you first heard it? Oh yeah, well let's can we just go back a bit? Yeah, let's. Do that. Know, I normally ask, how we, did you get into yeah, Dylan? Yeah, so I'll just right. ask it. How did you get into Dylan? Yeah, so uh, so I was born in 1958. So in a sense. The answer to your question is is already sort of implicit in that date, in that you know I I, I came to Dylan via um, progressive rock, uh, family, Hawkwind, this kind of stuff, and then by 1974, 1975, of course, anything progressive about progressive rock had been lost to that kind of ludicrous orchestration of prog rock. But we weren't quite, when Desire comes out, which is the first album I listened to, you know, we were just in that slight pause before that prog balloon was exploded by (laughs) punk. But of course, because the the main sort of source of information on TV, main exposure to new music was, of course, the old Grey Whistle Test. Yeah. You know, fantastic program. And I remember so clearly they had Bob Dylan on and it was, um, you know, I'd, I'd heard of Bob Dylan, not listened to him before. And it was that, I think it's the John Hammond TV show, is mm-hmm. it, where he performs, if I remember rightly, three songs, Hurricane, of course, mm-hmm. and maybe Oh simple Sister. Only Simple Twist of Fate and Oh Sister, I can't remember. Yeah, anyway, yeah. two or three songs like that. And I remember thinking how cool Dylan looked with his... Uh, stripy, I think he was wearing these sort of stripy trousers. And there was just something so interesting about it. And I think I was, you know, I was kind of getting ready for, you know, I was growing out of progressive, progressive rock. Mm. And so I bought, uh, like quite a lot of people, I bought Desire, because I know that was a very big selling uh, Dylan album. And then, um, you know, and then, of course, I go to university in 1977, uh, which then we enter into a period of just an amazing amount of stuff uh, happening with Dylan, you know, so that uh, at my first semester at Oxford, you know, the tickets go on sale for the uh, for the big tour. And, you know, it's pre-internet days. So one of my friends queued up to to get two tickets for the Earl's Court show. And you know, already by then, as well as listening to the going back through, working sort of backwards through the the catalogue to the, you know, the early, uh, you know, folky albums, mm. uh, already by then, you know, this world of the bootleg was starting to, to open up. And, you know, I distinctly remember going to one of the Earl's Court shows uh, the following year, 1978, this is. Of course, it was absolutely great, and it was a huge venue. And I think within about two days of that, you know, uh, we'd got our hands on a, on a, on a recording of, of that gig. Mm. And then later in the summer, uh, you know, I went to Black Bush, which I think is the, uh, I think that's the biggest, most momentous gig I've, I've, I've ever been to. You know, it was, uh, and it's quite, I think it'll be quite interesting when the official bootleg series gets round to that phase of Dylan's work, because in the sort of critical ranking of Dylan's tours, it comes pretty low down. And I know, you know, it was, it had been derided as the alimony tour. Mm. Um, and some of the arrangements, I think, sound a bit, maybe a bit overblown and bombastic. But one thing I am sure of is that Budokan album doesn't capture how great that band had become. It's very, very quiet and sort of timid, really, whereas it was really... Mm. I mean, I remember it being really explosively exciting at, uh, at Blackbush. And it would be interesting to see how that sort of... how that stacks up now. 
They've, a few of our guests have said that about Blackbush and Earl's yeah. Court. I have to say, recently it's been in, in the news that they were talking about the bootleg series and they think they've lost the tapes for the 78 tour. So they were saying, generally people don't, don't expect anything from that. Oh, that's just a way of getting us even more uh, excited <laughs> yes, about it. Because, exactly. I mean, you know, it's, it's this... This official bootleg program is fantastic. Of course, it's great. And that, yeah. you know, that moment of ownership when you've got that box set at home and it's got the booklet and it's mm-hmm. just so, that's just an amazing moment and it's great and it's wonderful that we have the sound quality and we have the dates when it was all that stuff we mm. can just kind of geek out over. But at some level, you know, I look back so fondly on the days when I'd meet up with somebody in a pub and we'd change cassette tapes uh, of, you know, this concert or that. And, you know, each one just felt like you'd, I don't know, you know, that you'd, it was the equivalent of Dylan just going off on that journey to, Mm. you know, looking for the world's biggest necklace. (laughs) And, I mean, the most extreme, so it's, I look back fondly on that and that kind of, you know, the the kind of the early Christian era of Dylan bootlegs when, Mm. you know, it was just this circle of initiates. And I do remember being so sort of disappointed when, you know, that ultimate Dylan bootleg, the the holy grail, you know, I'm not there. The song that exists only in one half-formed version, Mm. you know, unlike... I think that's the only Dylan song I can think of like that, you know, and even the words aren't there properly mm. and it wasn't included on the original Basement Tapes thing. And then when that film came out, I'm Not There, it mm. was, there it was, it was officially mm. available. Mm. And in a sense, I mean, just the the value of that was slightly, was somewhat diminished, I felt. I liked the way that it was this poorly recorded, yes. incomplete thing just emerging, mm. in the process of emerging from, from Dylan's unconscious. It's, it's that, and, it, and the other one, I, the only one I can think of in the same terms is Patty's Gone to Laredo. These songs that sound like they're, like they're being written as they're being recorded, almost. Oh, absolutely. But they were yeah. only ever done once. And as mm. you, you, you say, there's something so murky and kind of illicit about it. To have it on a clean CD with a big beginning and end somehow feels you know anachronistic or disrespectful or something too, like well, right. too clean especially with you know i'm not there because you get the impression that the tape button has been switched on some yeah. way into uh, his performing the song where you get you know and yeah it's just this and then it's and then it's gone so uh, the, the wonderful thing as well about i'm not there which has a, the same quality as a few different recordings is you feel as you say, that it's been going on for a while and it, it, you just have walked in when when mm. when you start to hear it, but it's been going on for a while and yeah. then you can leave, but it carries on without you. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite interesting yeah. when you hear... You know, at the end of uh, Inside Llewellyn Davis, the thing about the folk singer, have you seen it, the Coen Brothers film? Uh, I have seen it. It's yeah. about a sort of a... kind of a second-rate folk singer who yeah. thinks he's first-rate but really isn't. And at the very end of it, as just about as... He, as he's going out to the alleyway to be beaten up, he doesn't realise that he's about to be have the shit kicked out of him uh somebody it's outside a folk club but just he's leaving the folk club this guy you can hear this guy in the background it's and it's dylan it's it's a it's a it it was again an obscure dylan track which i don't think it's been released i think it's farewell i haven't seen the film but i've I've, oh it's a it's a great mm. film really about that era but also you can hear the dylan is it it is dylan it is this and and you can hear the charisma like Uh just it's just in the background and you can feel the charisma and i really think that it's a perfect end to this thing about about this guy who you you kind of sympathize with even though he's an asshole mm-hmm. but you you then that's the moment you realize he's no Dylan he's and that's no what Dylan. they're saying and yeah. this is what it's like when you're mm. no Dylan that's your 
you know, that's your life. It's not really very good. Yes. Yeah. But I remember reading that book. Is it by David Hadju? Um, uh, it's, is it called Positively Fourth Street? Oh, the one about the the Fourinias. And, yeah, and, yeah, that's right. And his, yeah. if I remember it rightly, his thesis in that is he suggests that actually Dylan's absolute sort of Dylan's potential greatness wasn't quite so evident back then as mm. we like to think. Uh, rather, he claims, you know, Dylan was one of a lot of hustlers on the make. Well, that's interesting because I was I, I was just watching this interview with Martin Carthy today on on YouTube. I just found it, and it, and he was talking about the early days uh, when mm. Dylan first came over and, and did uh, that that film for the BBC mm. and uh, hung around at the Troubadour mm-hmm. and, and all those places. And Martin, according to Martin Carthy, he was just, it was like he had a light following him. Uh, he was completely right. charismatic and yeah. everybody mm-hmm. on the folk scene in this country, mm-hmm. you know, acknowledged that he was so much better than yeah, they were. Yeah, but yeah. maybe in New York, uh, it was just a tougher gig, mm-hmm. you know, for maybe people didn't want to. There was always something thing, about yeah. that early, Dylan, uh, uh, something of the hustler, wasn't there? The kind of, you know, the uh, Paul Newman in the film, even just, you know, thinking, I can do this. I can, <laughs> yeah. I can beat the guy, you know. Um, yeah, and his incredible ability, just is that magpie-like ability to just pick up something here, something well, I, there. I've read another, in, in another book that somebody was quoted as saying, I would meet Bob every week on some street corner, you know, pass him, meet him. And he was a different person every time <laughs> I met him. <laughs> I mean, yeah. who can you say that about? You know, yeah. he wasn't kidding either. Well, that's what I love so much about that film, I'm Not There, from 2007, is it just, it really, really hits a truth with those different identities, you know, that mm-hmm. the Bob Dylan is all of these people and none of them. Yeah. And we're foolish to try and think that one is more real than another, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a question. We, uh, people have different, uh, different sort of favourite phases of Dylan, don't mm. they? But I think that's one of the things that, there seems to me a broad consensus about the uh, the rolling thunder uh, review you know uh, of course back when he goes electric those gigs are so um, you know so fantastic but i remember one of your other guests uh, oh was it was it michael saying that actually when he was there it was just so loud yeah, all was, he was aware yeah. of was just how loud it was he literally yeah. he said it was 10 times louder than any gig yeah, ever and i said really? are you being literal he said yes yeah yeah and I, it's funny because um, with that that box set when it came out as he say it says it was all mixed and lovely i used to have an audience recording of the Leicester show from from may 66 and it was quite clearly done from, you know, someone's foot in, in the circle, <laughs> yeah. and, and it was very murky. But something about it, you could hear the tangible shock in the crowd uh-huh. that this was not a comfortable experience to listen to. It was not particularly pleasant. It was not particularly enjoyable. And, of course, the music is wonderful, but when you put the music up front, you, you lose all of that. Yeah, yeah. And there was something else. Maybe you hear you heard those 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 tapes that you were swapping in the 70s in pubs. Again, I don't know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, um, there is often some sort of atmospheric, some mm. sort of vibe, isn't there? Um, that thing of going to see somebody uh, before they die, essentially. Mm. You know, I can, I, I can say, truthfully, I've seen Miles Davis. Wow. But the only value of that experience is being able to say that. Yeah. You know, so I yeah. think that, mm. you know, but that's, of course, people want to say that they've seen uh, uh, Bob Dylan. But for me, I mean, um, I the last time I saw him, I think it was in about 2015 in Austin, Texas, oh, yeah. uh, a smallish venue. I was in row 12, fantastic sound, mm. great band, um, and I suppose it was okay. But I remember thinking several things. One, I'm never going again. <laughs> Two, um, I just felt he was so done. 
And he was just so done, which made me think, why does he keep doing this? And that incredible thing at the end of the Scorsese film and all these uh, all these places that yeah. he's playing. And, you know, you think, I'm, I'm a writer. I know I want to get out of the house too. But you wonder, <laughs> is his home life so terrible? That yeah, well, apparently he doesn't... Well, you can see that he's never at home. Yeah, he's never at home. Who feeds the dogs, I'm wondering. And I'm familiar with him saying, you know, it's the only place where he feels at home on stage. But you would Mm. feel if that's the case, there would be some sort of manifestation of it. Although I did rather like it at the end of the Austin show when a lesser performer might have acknowledged the audience with a bow or something. Dylan just glared at us. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then another, I'd seen him also in um, something like 2004 at Brixton Academy, mm. where the sound is so terrible anyway, mm. that you'd sort of say, I said to my wife, is that tangled up in blue or is it, I don't believe you. And, uh, mm. you know, it was really terrible, really awful. And then I came out and said to my uh, another friend I bumped into, I said, God, that was really bad. And she said, oh, you thought that was bad you should have been here a couple of years (laughs) ago but then you get this weird thing where people will go to a recent dylan show and they'll say a it was great and then you know just to make sure that you're aware that you're in the that you're talking about a completely religious experience there are these evenings apparently when the voice is miraculously restored and I never believe it, partly because I don't, I don't think much of the, you know, the music, these chug-along boogies, you know, it just doesn't, mm. do, doesn't mm. do anything for me. And, you know, I don't think I could sit through another going through of like a Rolling Stone. Or... I'm, I'm intrigued um, that you've written about so many different things and little essay, huge number of essays. Mm. Have you written about Bob? Uh, not so much. I did have an essay in that book, The Dylan Companion, many, many years oh, ago. Oh, I've got it. I, I, got I've it. got it in my loo. I'll have to look oh, it right. up. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then just other bits and pieces. You know, yeah, I haven't written. I certainly don't. I mean, uh, rest assured, there's not a Dylan book ever forthcoming from me. Uh, and well, why? I'm just not sure that I've got a book's worth of stuff to say about him. But, uh, you know, my interest in him is is sort of endless. And what I think is, I mean, there's something particular about one my relationship with Dylan, and I think it's quite common. You know, let's suppose you get this urge to sort of listen again to a track, a typical track of music from 20, 30 years ago by somebody. So you can listen to it very easily now. But typically you listen to about 30 seconds of it and that's, you've sort of, oh yeah, mm. I see, that's an mm. answer. Even mm. if it's a great piece of music. With Dylan, you can go maybe, you can go six weeks or maybe even six months without listening to it. And then you'll listen to a Dylan track for whatever reason. And several things. A, its greatness is absolutely undiminished to the extent that you quite often think, as I'd, how can somebody be so fantastic? B, every sort of note of it is is interesting. C, that will then lead you back into full-blown Dylan addiction for a while. And then the other thing is that so often if you have, I remember this, I'm going back a bit now, but it seems to me there'd be certain situations in life, particularly romantic things. If you have some sort of the romantic scenario, so often it's a line or a song of Dylan's that articulates what's going on in that scenario for you. So there's there's just no diminution at all in one's uh, in one's appreciation of, of Dylan, which is really quite unusual. It's Im- impossible, inconceivable to me that I'll ever grow out of him. Um, although, you know, there are, God, there are, plenty of bits of the the Dylan opus that are 
that uh, I don't listen to, but it doesn't matter because it's so there's so mm. much of it. Are there certain songs or albums that take you right back to very specific points of your life? That's harder to say because um, typically with a piece of music, you know, there's a moment when it was, you know, your interest in it was at its peak. Whereas mm. Dylan has been such a con- something like Blood on the Tracks has been such a constant presence for me, which actually brings. So, I mean, another point that as I was talking at the beginning about Idiot Wind and those different versions. I mean, it's become increasingly difficult in memory for me to sort out which is the original version. It's all of these different versions Mm. of them sort of um, merging into each other. So the idea of there being a definitive version is is just, you know, it's just inappropriate. Uh, And then it occurred to me that in the future, technologically, maybe some 17-year-old could even do it now. You know, you could take all the bits of... um, Idiot Wind, say, or mm. Tangled Up in Blue that you like, and you could put them together and come up with your perfect version, <laughs> even though perfection is completely anathema to the Dylan uh, method. Uh, but that room... I- God, we've had so many windows open. I, I forgot to say what I wanted to say about those lines from Idiot Wind okay. at, the, at the beginning. You know, it was linking up with what Michael had said. You know, that that line, that verse he quotes ends with, in all your raging glory. And then at the end of the bit I quoted when he says, you know, and it makes me feel so sorry. And I think, God, what a... What a great conclusion to draw, just to be sorry, regretful. And it's yeah. you have to wait so long for that rhyme from glory to be completed. Mm. So that there's a lot of time and a lot of lines between the, you know, the, the scale of the sorriness. But of course, it's a, it's a typical, it's a very characteristic Dylan sorry, and it has no, no element of apology in it at all, does it? <laughs> have, you ever heard the, have you ever heard the rumour that the year after, I think, 77... He wrote some songs that were even darker oh, right. um, and apparently played them to T-Bone Burnett. I'm not sure they've ever been recorded, but they have taken on the title of a made-up album title called I'm Cold. <laughs> T-Bone Burnett and I think a couple of other people heard them and they are the darker version. Oh. So you've got Blood of the Tracks, New York, Minnesota, Fort Collins. This was what comes after. Goodness me. Before oh, it's Black Album. Because 77 is one of his lost years, isn't it? 77, yeah. he spent a lot of time just getting divorced by the looks of things. Yes, and then, um, then you know, then assembles the the, the anime yeah. tour. I take it that this uh, album, I Am Cold, the very dark album, mm. it's presumably a collection of love songs because, of course, uh, to be the recipient of a a love song from Dylan is a very dubious privilege, yeah. isn't it? Because although he's going to say nice things like "you're lovely and great," you 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 know you speak without ideals or violence. <laughs> uh, it's also going to culminate in "but you betrayed me," uh, "you've got a broken wing," yeah. and uh, "I've moved on anyway." <laughs> Blowing every time you move your teeth. Yeah, <laughs> no, all right. We, we mentioned uh, your, your books and other books. Are there are there any Dylan books you you can recommend or that you rate? Oh, there's so many of them. Yeah, I mean, I really, I was just the other day looking through Michael Gray's uh, encyclopedia, and I like that because, I mean, I'm also a huge, I mean, I think one of the great works of literature of our time is David Thompson's biographical dictionary of film, Mm. you know, which is, I like these lunatic uh, Mm. undertakings. Um, And then, you know, I guess I'd want to mention, I mean, I'll mention that even though it's sort of disappointing because... I mean, we'll go back again, I mean, a bit. So in, when I was at Oxford, where lectures was just so, lectures was so dreary, you know, by these, these old duffers just droning on. But it was at that time when Christopher Ricks was uh, um, giving lectures on Dylan. 
And he came and gave, I think I went to two lectures, one on Dylan and Cliché and the other on how Dylan's songs end. Wow. And it was just fantastic. They were these, you know, he's a great performer, Ricks. Mm. Uh, he's treating seriously this, telling us stuff that, you know, about stuff that I'm so interested in. And two other things. At the end of it, you know, he had the the bloke who'd introduced him said, and Professor Ricks has kindly donated his honorarium for, for, um, for free beer for everybody. So free beer, those are the <laughs> words you want to hear when you're a student. That was in- unbelievably nice of him. Yeah. Uh, and then also at the end of it when we were chatting, and he lent me one of his Dylan bootleg cassettes. Wow. It's really fantastic, just great, great stuff. And like everyone, I was really eagerly awaiting the, the, the Rick's book on Dylan. And then the wait was too long, actually. By the time it came, it was a, a, a terrible disappointment, I think. I mean, maybe I'd have liked it more if, if Rick's had given it its true title, not Dylan's vision of sin, but yeah. rhyme and pun hyphen Ishment, you know, <laughs> it was just, uh, yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, so there's. I mean, I've got a whole uh, on your your website mm, page. Mm. I was really struck by the way that uh, my shelf of Dylan books is identical to yours. Actually, that's yeah, that's my bookshelf, and I've, my books are so badly organised. We've got more books at home than than we have space mm. so there's another layer of books behind those oh is there okay. sometimes very dylan well yeah, <laughs> yeah it's layered right yeah. <laughs> yeah but if i suddenly think i want to read what's that sean willens or that howard sounds one i think i'm sure i own that oh it's behind it's michael behind, cray that's why yeah. i can't see it well I, I have a great uh fondness as well for the the clinton halen book is it called behind closed doors yes, i'm like that one yeah like that one. uh and i i mean i love all that stuff about just the, you know, of course, the bootleg releases. This was, bef- you know, I think mm. he didn't have access then to all the information we have now. But I, I thought that was just fascinating, all, all, all yeah, that behind stuff. Behind Closed Doors goes up to World Gone Wrong, doesn't it? I mean, yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's, it's give or take the first half of his career. Yeah. yeah. I, I read a review that you wrote the other day of Mike, the Mike Tyson biography. Oh, yeah. That was ghostwritten by Ratto Sloman. Mm. And I was wondering, do, and you, you love that. And I was wondering, A, is there any relation between you and boxing or you and Ratto? Because he was one of our guests. And, oh, yes, he uh, was. Yeah. And, I, you know, he crops up a, a lot. I love the comment by the, the fictional producer about what a low life <laughs> scumbag yes. he, he was. Yes, yeah, he loved yeah. that. Because yeah. we were, we were uh, dealing with him around that time. And he said, oh, you know, yeah, I'm in the movie and it's, it's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but do you have any relationship? Because Dylan's got a relationship with boxing. Yeah, I guess he does, but I don't. I mm. just liked, um, you know, I just like I was interested in Tyson, and uh, you know that book is so fantastic because he captures Tyson's voice so so well. It sounded talk about dark. I mean, I've only read your review, but I wasn't sure I could even. T- in fact, I, I I know I tried to read a book about Tyson once, and it was just. It was so bleak. I mean, his yeah. his original, you know, his growing up was like, it was, I couldn't imagine anything worse. Yeah, he's really, I mean, I think it's just, I mean, he's a very, very smart guy. I mean, and to be able to, somebody who's, I mean, I, I've just seen the, the Maradona, I saw the Maradona film the day after the Dylan film. Mm. And, you know, what a week for documentaries yeah. that mm. was. Mm. Jeez. And it seems to me, you know, that there's Tyson and Maradona have just, they reach these unimaginable heights um, and then you know there's there's the fallout, and then you know for me it sort of climaxes with Tyson saying you know my entire life has been a complete and utter waste. I mean what a what a thing to 
I say. It is interesting that, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, a lot of the great actors, a lot of the great musicians, a lot of the great sports figures, you know, they had these terrible, deprived childhood, mm. childhoods. And then there's Dylan, who had the most kind of ordinary middle class. Mm. Admittedly, it was in the iron ore belt and the weather was terrible. But basically, he, his mother loved him and, yeah. uh, you know, he had a slightly troubled relationship with his father, but he didn't have any, you know, his mother wasn't a heroin addict prostitute or anything like that. No, but he was able to sort of channel everything. So it's like, I was thinking of this the other day, that in some ways, yeah, Dylan, Dylan is a sort of authentic survivor of the American Civil War. He can reach his sort of, uh, his sort of imaginative scope, can embrace that. And I was remember when I was young, the very first band I got into was Credence Clearwater Revival. You know, those authentic children of the bayou, oh, (laughs) from California. And it's the same thing, it seems to me, that, uh, you know, with Gillian Welch, who is, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, a wonderful singer. And one of the things that makes her so wonderful, I think, is that she has really absorbed so much Dylan. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And... You know, she, uh, at some level, she really believes she comes from, uh, you know, the, the the south, from south of Mason Dixon, yeah, of course, yeah. from Los Angeles. But she um, was adopted, so there is that. Yeah, you know? yeah, so yeah. You, there's that, but, I think she kind of feels... Yeah, but I think there was some... There's, it's not that with Dylan, you know, he really... I mean, at some level, he genuinely did have access to all that sort of suffering and hardship that he talks about, even though, as you absolutely rightly say, you know, it wasn't part of his uh, circumstantial for, formation. I wonder if that's an English thing as opposed to American, that we demand that somebody presents their credentials. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like, can Eric, can Eric Clapton sing the blues? Well, we have to go through his life and see how troubled he is first. Oh, yes, he's, <laughs> yes. he's passed the test. Yeah. That's all right then. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, that's quite an English kind of thing, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Is there any, you know, big conclusion? That, I know you're not going to write a book, but if you did write a book, uh, another essay... Yeah, no, I think we've covered most of the stuff I wanted to say. I've just finished Jeff's book, Broadsword Calling Danny Boy, which is all about where eagles dare, which is a wonderful book I recommend to anybody. And you're all thinking, well, what's the Dylan connection? He even gets a Bob Dylan reference into this book. So right. I was very, very impressed with that. They were fighting in the cable car fight at the end of Where Eagles Dare. One of them, you know, is going to fall into the valley below. Oh, that's right. So I was yeah, very impressed yeah, that you yeah, managed to get that in right. there. Well, it is tempting sometimes, isn't it, to see if you can... Uh, get through an evening relying only on on lines of of Dylan, you know. I, tr- oh, yeah. I, I try and get through whole days where I don't listen to him and don't talk about him, and it hasn't worked for a long, <laughs> no, long time. No, you can ask our wives. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> there isn't a day that goes by that, and I, I, I try to bite my tongue. But... The other weekend, when I was in, in Italy, um, I took Grill Marcus's Bob Dylan book with me, and there's a picture on the front. Which um, one? The, the coll- it's the collection. It's oh, the, yeah, it's the collection yeah. works yeah. um, of his essays on, on Bob Dylan, yeah. and on the front is a picture of Bob Dylan as he is on the cover of World Gone Wrong with his check shirt and his top hat in Camden in 1993 and my wife said how many times have you read that book and I said I've never read it before this is a new one she went oh really and I looked at it and I thought it does look a bit like Song and Dance Man 3, <laughs> which has also got a picture of Bob Dylan and a checked hat at the top. Uh, but we, we, we have a couple of loos, and I've got pile. I've now got piles of Bob Dylan books in, in every loo. And, and, well, uh, the thing is about Bob Dylan, he's so interesting, isn't it? Everything yeah. about Dylan is, is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Worthy, of, worthy of our continued attention. Yeah. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Corpus Christi Suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Daniel Bodsworth 
and produced by Robin Guys. We're on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Music is by Sam Hare. Some of the people can be half right part of the time. All of the people can be part right some of the time. Half the people can be part right all of the time. But all of the people can't be all right all of the time. T.S. Eliot said that. <laughs>